Mother's Day. It's supposed to be a day to thank our moms and to celebrate motherhood. The world rushes around us in flower shops and scours greeting card displays, with some women approaching this day with a great sense of hope and pride. But there are others, others who shrink back, uncertain of how to engage such a triggering moment filled with hurt, sadness, or even tragedy. I have a question for you, and be honest. How do you really feel this Mother's Day? Today, as some of you celebrate great times, others of you have more questions than answers. We want you to know that none of you are alone. This is for you. To those who gave birth this year, we celebrate you. To those who have ever lost a child, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who have experienced miscarriage, failed adoption, or children running away, we mourn with you. To those who lost their mothers, we grieve with you. Sorry. I'm so sorry. Sorry, Sorry. To those who walk the hard path of infertility with pokes, prods, fears, and tears, and disappointments, we mourn with you. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with their moms, we celebrate you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who have lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall test of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who step-parent, we walk with you. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering children, we wait on and trust God with you. To those who have envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not meant to be, we grieve with you. To those who have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we both grieve and rejoice with you. And to those who are pregnant with new life, we anticipate with you. But above all, but above all, but above all on this Mother's Day, as mothers and non-mothers alike, remember this. We are all daughters. A daughter birthed by our earthly parents, for sure. But in Christ, but in Christ, but in Christ, a beloved daughter of our Heavenly Father. So whatever you are facing on this day, remember this. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are valued. You are righteous. Not because of anything you have done or can do, but only because of what Jesus has already done. No amount of praise or gifts on this Mother's Day can compare to one drop of the precious blood Jesus gave for you. His work made you His, and He has given you an eternal identity. You are His beloved daughter. You are His beloved daughter. You are His beloved daughter. You are His beloved daughter, in whom He is well pleased. Happy Mother's Day. 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 Happy Daughter's Day. Great job. Well, each Mother's Day, I make some comments to address 
all our women in the various situations that were described in that video. And I couldn't say it better than they did, so I decided to let them do the talking on that. Now let's ask God to help us as we look at his word together. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word and to see there how we can please you as parents and as grandparents or as, in effect, godparents to the children in our church family, though we may not have children in our home. We want to please you with this most privileged and important and blessed task. So help us to focus our minds and open our hearts to your instruction. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you've wiped your tears and all of that, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at a number of verses there so the guys have some Bibles. And as they make their way to the back, get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you. That is marked for you at Deuteronomy 6. All of us would, I'm sure, agree that the most basic responsibility of parents is to love their children. But folks have very different understandings of what it means to love those children. Many parents behave as though loving our children means never saying no. They are permissive, that is, they permit their children to do as they please. And for these parents, love is never having to say you can't or I won't. For others, love means protecting our children from the consequences of their choices. So whenever the child makes a foolish or even sinful choice, we're there to bail them out, sometimes literally, because after all, he's my child and I love him. Others understand that they need to avoid permissiveness and pampering because their task is to raise children who are to become responsible adults, but that then raises the question, responsible to what or to whom? So when we say we love our children, what does that mean? Biblically, to love our children means we always do what is in their best interest. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. And the key words in that definition are best interest. That permissive parent would be helped immensely if they would simply ask, is it in the best interest of my child to allow him to do, say, and go wherever he wants? That protective parent would be helped greatly if they would ask, is it in my child's best interest to get him off the hook for his irresponsible and sinful choices? And the responsible parent also needs to ask, is the best interest of my child served simply if he grows up to have a good job, marries a nice girl, and has a nice, responsible family. If love is doing what is in the best interest of our children, then what does the Bible say is in their best interest? To put all of this another way, how can I know whether I am now, or whether I have been in the past, a good parent to my children? How does God define a good parent? Now, at the outset, you may say, depending on your circumstance, look, I've already raised my kids, 
So how does any of this apply to me? Or I don't have kids at all. Well, grandma and grandpa, I'd encourage you to listen to what's said today and to seek to use your influence to help your kids raise theirs in this way, whether or not you did. And for those who don't have children, please understand this. The kids in this church are, in a sense, our kids. We each work together to see that they receive the training they need and that we, all of us, uphold a model for them to follow. It does take a village. It does take a community. It does take a church to raise a child. And so what does God say good parents do? We have an outline for you that's at the back of your program. If you'll just flip that over. And we have four things that Deuteronomy 6 tells us good parents do. The first is this. Good parents direct their children to God. Good parents direct their children to God. Now, the name of this book of the Bible that we're going to look at, Deuteronomy, means literally, the word means literally second law. And it's called that because in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the one just before the one we're going to look at, the Ten Commandments, which were originally given 40 years before Deuteronomy was written, those commandments are now repeated as a reminder before God's people enter into the land He promised to them. And having restated His laws in chapter 5, chapter 6 begins this way, verse 1. These are the commands, decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are now, that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children and their children after them, may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. And so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you. And that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Verse 2 says that these laws were given so that you will fear the Lord your God. It's telling us what I have next in your outline, and that's this. That if we direct our children to God, it means that God is their most important relationship. God is their most important relationship. Fear the Lord is used a few different ways in the Bible, sometimes depending on whether it's with reference to unbelievers or believers. One commentator has said, For the unbeliever, the fear of God is the fear of judgment of God and eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. And so the Bible speaks of the fear of God in that way in some passages. For example, in Hebrews 10, some look forward to a a fearful judgment that awaits the enemies of God, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So that's the fear of the Lord for the the unbeliever. But then for the believer, the fear of God is something much different. The believer's fear is reverence of God. And you see that used in passages in the Bible, like in Hebrews 12. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. One preacher said, another way to say reverence is to prize, to cherish, or to to value. 
And what we prize, what we cherish, and what we value, friends, we prioritize. That's why when Nehemiah was rebuilding Jerusalem, as recorded in the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 7, he says he was looking for some to help him. And he says this, I put in charge of Jerusalem a man of integrity who feared God more than most people do. That describes someone who puts God first. And most people don't. The Bible says it's possible to put other people first and other things first. So it's important to us and sometimes too important to us what other people think, for example. Proverbs 29 says this, fear of man will prove to be a snare. That is the reverence, the awe, the prizing, the prioritization of what people think will entrap you in a snare. The Bible says in our passage that God has given his commands, his decrees and his laws so that we and our children will fear, reverence, prize, cherish, value, prioritize him. Friends, God is our children's most important relationship. And therefore, they are to see in us that it's our most important relationship. Now, think about all of the lesser things that might be more important to us for our children than their relationship with God. We want them to have it as well or better than we did growing up. And that might be the most important thing to you, that my kid's going to have it better than I did. Or if we did well in school and or sports, we want them to have that same enjoyment. Sometimes even living our lives vicariously through our kids. I enjoyed that so much, my kids are going to have the same experience. Or if we didn't do well and we're disappointed, we don't want our kids to experience the same, so their success is a priority for us. Now, of course, it's all fine and good for us to want our children to do well. I have personally wanted and want Laney and Annie to do well in school and in the sports in which they participated. They know that I love to see them do well, and I'm very proud of them. But they should never think that there is anything more important in the lives of their parents or in their parents' desires for them than is an obvious and growing and vibrant relationship with our God. Whatever else our children achieve, whatever careers they pursue, whatever heights they reach, if their relationship with the Lord is not their number one passion, hear this, friends, they're not doing well. And if we're asked, hey, how are your kids doing? A lot of times it'll be that list of stuff, won't it? Hey, got a good job? Got a spouse? Got some kids? Everything's well. If they don't have a passion for God, no matter anything else, they're not doing well. And if they're not seeing that in us, then we are not parenting them well. Good parents have a passion that their children see, A passion to serve the Lord and please the Lord because they revere the Lord. He is most important. So good parents direct their children to God. He's their most important relationship. But I say in your outline also, God's word is their most important subject. God's word is their most important subject. 
Verse 1 says that God gave commands, decrees, and laws. And those were given to teach Israel to obey so that they, their children, and their children after them might fear, revere, prioritize, cherish the Lord. This fear of the Lord, this relationship with God, therefore, comes with an understanding of His Word. We sometimes ask school-age kids, tell me, what's your favorite subject? And we get answers like history or math or biology. When I was a kid and somebody asked me that, the answer was gym, lunch, study hall. And then when they get to college, we say, hey, tell me, what's your major? But all of the individual subjects and their high school diploma and their college degree, friends, they're all subordinate and dependent on one book, the Word of God, the Bible. Because the Bible addresses everything. It addresses everything either in precept or in principle, either directly or indirectly. Theologian John Frame says, The range of subject matter to which Scripture may be applied is unlimited. His mentor, Cornelius Van Til, said, There's a sense in which Scripture speaks of everything. We do not mean that it speaks of football games or atoms, etc. directly, but we do mean that it speaks of everything either directly or indirectly. It tells us not only of Christ and His work, but it also tells us who God is and whence the universe has come. It gives us a philosophy of history as well as history. And so, you know, friends, if if we see a parent who fails to give his child food and clothing and to ensure things like that they're in school and that they're protected and so on, we would say that that parent is neglecting his children, right? Well, what about a failure to ensure they receive an education in the Bible? There is no neglect that is worse than that. No neglect worse than depriving our children of an education in the Word of God. It's most, his most important subject. Good parents direct their children to God. Because God is our children's most important relationship. And God's Word is their most important subject. And then I say in your outline, Godly children are their most important legacy. That is, if we are blessed to have children, this is obviously speaking here about our children and our children's children. So if we are blessed to have children and they in turn are blessed to have children of their own, then godly children are their and our most important legacy. Now look at verse 2 again. The Word of God was given for this purpose, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Leaving a godly legacy for our children should be the goal of all Christian parenting. And although the faith and godliness of our children is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit, God often uses the influence of parents to make a great impact on their children and then their children after them. Many of you know the name Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is considered by many to be the greatest theologian that America 
has ever produced. He led the revival that's known in church history as the first great awakening in the mid-18th century. And he and his godly wife, Sarah, left a wonderful legacy for their 11 children. And at the turn of the 20th century, around 1900, American educator and pastor A.E. Winship decided to trace out the descendants of Jonathan Edwards almost 150 years after his death. His findings were astounding, especially when compared to a man known as Max Jukes. Jukes' legacy came to the forefront when the family trees of 42 different men in the New York prison system traced back to that guy. Jonathan Edwards' godly legacy includes one U.S. vice president, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, three college presidents, or 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. It's quite a legacy if you omit the 100 lawyers. (laughs) Sorry to the lawyers out there. Max Juke's descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 50 women of debauchery, 130 other convicts, 310 paupers who combined spent 2,300 years lived in poorhouses, 400 who were physically wrecked by indulgent living. It was estimated that Max Duke's descendants cost the state more than a million and a quarter, uh, a million and a quarter, one million two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Friends, good parents take the long view. They seek to impact their children so that generations to come will honor the Lord. They think about the impact of their actions now on what comes later. Good parents direct their children to God. But I say secondly in your outline. Good parents affect their children for God. Good parents affect their children for God. Now, it's true that being a godly parent does not guarantee godly children. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 18, the Bible says, A righteous man may have a violent son who does detestable things. But it's also true that God is often pleased to use the godly passion and example of parents to affect the lives of children. And if we're going to positively affect our children's lives, we must give attention to our own lives first. And that begins with having an accurate view of who God is. Verse 4 of chapter 6 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a reminder of who is God and who God is. It was the supreme and foundational doctrinal statement that all Israel, all Jews, had impressed upon them. The name that's translated Lord in that verse is the personal name of God, Yahweh. The God of Israel is our Lord, with whom we have a personal relationship, and there is no other. He is one and only one, and He has no rivals. 
This statement distinguished Israel's true and living God from the belief in many gods that were held by the surrounding nations to Israel. But of course, it's not enough to just know the truth about God and then to be able to recite an accurate creed about God. Our lives have to be affected by the truth that we say we believe. So verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now this famous statement that Jesus said 1,500 years later is the first and greatest of all the commandments. Love the Lord your God. First and greatest. And in it, it piles up terms, heart and soul and strength. And it does that to emphasize that every part of us and every part of our lives is to be touched by the truth we believe about the Lord. There's to be no part of us or our lives that's separate and unfazed by what we say we believe about Him. Friends, it's easy for us to go through the motions and for us to do religious stuff, even good stuff, like show up at church or even read your Bible during the week. But to do all of those things and go through all those motions and not have it touch where you live. And God later chastised His people for having fallen prey to that very danger. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. I wonder how many of us are here just because we've always been here. Just because somebody taught us that that's what you do. Well, I'm glad somebody taught us to do that. But I think you would agree that's not enough. It's not enough just to go through the motions. And God and God chastises His people for that very kind of going through the motions approach. So verse 6 says, These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And perhaps the best evidence that what we say we believe is genuine that it's rooted in our hearts and it's affecting every thought and decision and action. Perhaps the best evidence of that is whether or not it's lived out in our homes. Now why? Why at our homes? Because how you are at home is the best barometer of your spiritual life. Because that's where real life is lived. It's not when you're at church, okay? This ain't real life. And you ain't acting real. But see, at home, you you get real. Everybody sees you real. Real life is in the pressure and activities of home where our truest selves are exposed in the heat of daily living. And that's why verse 8 returns to family life then. Excuse me, verse 7. Verse 7 says, Impress them on your children. And the word that's translated impress is the word for sharpening a blade. When I played hockey as a boy, I used to love to take my skates to Downriver Hardware on Jefferson in Ecorse. And they had a skate sharpening machine in the, in the back of the store. 
And I'd watch as the owner would secure the skate on a a vise. And then he would move the blade of the skate back and forth so that each part of the blade was touched by the wheel that was whirring on the machine. And verse 7 is saying that parents are to be sharpening their children for a life lived for God and his purposes. Now, how? How does that how does that happen? How do we do that? Well, first, we talk to them about God and his works, about who God is and what God has done. Look at verse seven again. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Now, the settings that are given there in which we're to talk about the Lord are designed to convey that we are to do it regularly, that we're to do it in all situations. If you have a family, a regular family devotion time, that's good. But the best times to talk about the Lord are the teachable moments that God allows in the routine of life in which God is related to all that's happening. And you verbally and intentionally relate God to all that's happening. When our children are having trouble at school, whether with peers or with teachers or just with their studies, is God the first one you invoke as the one who cares about them? And as the one who's an ever-present help in times of trouble and who has, now hear this, something to teach those kids in every situation he allows. So to affect our children for God, we talk about him as the center of all of our activity. And we take actions that are consistent with that claim. Verse 8. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, Orthodox Jews took this very literally. They made little ornate boxes that are called phylacteries. And in the box, they would place little portions, papers with little portions of Scripture, particularly Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God is one. And then they would tie those phylacteries around their wrists as a bracelet. And all of that was to serve as a reminder to them. Everywhere they went, that God is central to everything that's going on. Now, unfortunately, by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders had made a show of that otherwise, I think, helpful practice so that Jesus had to castigate them in Matthew 23. Jesus said, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and they love the most important seats in the synagogues. One preacher has said of verses eight and nine that we just read, the point of the passage is that in all our daily activity, In all our commerce, our coming, our going, and in every deed and in every thought, the Scripture is to shape our actions. We teach our children with what we say and with consistent action. So when they hear us pray, we're sharpening them. When we sit down with our children and we evaluate the news or what happened in school in light of the Word of God, we're sharpening them. When they see us on Saturday night begin preparations for the Lord's Day because we've dedicated it to Him, we're sharpening those children. When they see us deal with our brothers and sisters in God's church with 
service and sacrifice were sharpening them for the Lord's use. Those are the kinds of things that our children need to see. They need to see it. If you're blessed to have two parents in your home, they need to see it. Hear this from both parents. Not just mom. Dad, it's Mother's Day. And the best thing you could do on Mother's Day for your spouse is for you to tell her today, I'm going to begin leading this family spiritually. I'm thankful there's a bunch of men here. I'm thankful that our church has a lot of men who have taken up that mantle. And I'm thankful that we have a vibrant men's ministry. And I appreciate Rich's work in leading that. It's, it's terribly important. Evangelicalism as a whole, there have been lots of written about this. It's actually being led by women because the men are nowhere to be found. But I'm speaking to you, brother. If your wife is leading your home spiritually, you've got to step up. And the best thing you could do is let her know today that God has convicted your heart to do that very thing. So that you're the one taking the initiative to talk about Jesus to your children. You're the one who's relating everything that's happening, going on around them to the Word of God and what you're learning from the Word of God. Good parents direct their children to God. And good parents affect their children for God. And thirdly in your outline, Good parents protect their children for God. Good parents protect their children for God. In every age and in every culture, there is the pull away from God to other things and people. So verse 10 says this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you. A land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful. That you do not forget the Lord. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's saying you're going to go into this land now. And you are going to prosper materially. And when that happens, be careful. When prosperity is achieved, as it has been in America. Now, you know, it's a political year and, you know, prosperity, really, the economy's lousy and you've got, you know, whoever and whatever you blame for that. But believe it or not, we live in an anomalous time in history where average people actually would have been considered rich, people like us at other places and other times in history. The mere fact that average people in our country have discretionary income, that is, money that they don't have to use for food, shelter, and clothing. If you've got anything left over after that, that's discretionary. And throughout history, most average people, unless you were nobility, you didn't have that. That's not the way it's been throughout history. And in most parts of the world, it's not that way today. But it's where we are and we have been for a very long time. And that prosperity has the potential to draw us away from God. Because we come to love our stuff so much, we want more of it. Or at minimum, we want to be sure our kids have it too, so they pick up that what's really important is my career and my house and my car, my money. 
And that's why Jesus then had to warn when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Jesus said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, what some parents try to do is, on the one hand, they pursue money and they chase after the almighty dollar. But, you know, they attend a church like this. And they hear the pastor kind of go off on this every so often. And they know the kids hear that. So what do I do about that? I mean, I'm chasing. That's what's really important to me. But how do I reconcile what I'm doing with what the church is saying? More importantly, what God is saying in the Bible. And so what they do is, as they chase the almighty dollar, they tell their kids, hey, this is not really what life's all about. I hope you understand that. We can't forget God, so let's be sure to thank Him for all He's given us. So God sort of makes a cameo appearance in our script. And He's not central to it. He's after the fact. We say, in effect, thanks for blessing my pursuit of my agenda, God. So we can't protect our kids from the lure of prosperity any other way, friends, than to live in such a way that it's clear that that is not what we're about. So we will not be a workaholic. And you remember in God's law, he made sure that nobody could be a workaholic. He said, you're going to take a day off. Every week, you're going to take a day off. Yeah, but everybody else around us is making more money and we got to keep up. And God says, you're going to take a day off. Every week. You will not be a workaholic. When stuff breaks down, your attitude will be its only stuff. And we won't fall apart when people <laughs> sit on our furniture. I just got this crazy idea that that's what it was there for. But I remember when I was a kid playing hockey, we went to play in Columbus, Ohio, and we stayed overnight, and the idea was whatever number your jersey had, you stayed at the home of the that number jersey on the other team. And so I stayed at this family's home, and they had a just a beautiful place. And I remember going into their living room, and their furniture had, like, cut plastic on it? <laughs> now, was this a museum? Now, if you've got, you know, that vinyl and stuff on your furniture, just take it off when I come over, because I'm... <laughs> so we weren't, we're not going to fall apart when people sit on our furniture, or even when kids play on it, or even when they, heaven forbid, spill stuff on it. Why? Because the stuff is there for living, and the stuff is not my life. And prosperity is but one of the false gods that vie for our and our children's allegiance. Verse 13. Fear the Lord your God. Serve Him only and take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And His anger will burn against you and He will destroy you from the face of the land. Now the rival gods that tempt us and our children are not primarily made of wood and stone and we bow down to them. But they're the values of the world that capture our hearts And they distract us from the true and living God. Things like materialism that I've talked about. But not just materialism. Things like, in our culture, sensuality. We live in a sensual culture. And our children 
And can I say, especially our daughters are tempted to look sensual as our ladies, their mothers, even professing Christian mothers. And whether it's affluence or sensuality or celebrity or frivolity, and the list could go on and on, all of these are values that our culture extols and they affect the way our children see what's important and even how they think church life should be conducted. Did you know that? Should we be surprised if our children, if we and our children, imbibe this kind of entertainment, frivolous set of values in the world six days a week, and then they come to church and they go, that is so boring. i got to go to a church that's more hip. i got to go to a church that's more with it. Why? Because they've been imbibing those values all week. We shouldn't be surprised that they then at church even prioritize entertainment. And the antidote to all of that, friends, is the determination of we as parents to live what the Bible calls a holy life. Holy means separate. It means distinct. It means different. So even though those are the values there, we don't care. Because God has a different set of values and God's people march to the beat of a different drummer. Good parents direct their children to God. They affect their children for God. They protect their children for God. And then lastly, good parents describe for their children the glory of God. They describe for their children the glory of God. You see, the Bible tells us what we're to do. But your kids are going to ask, why do we do it? Okay, so if you say, okay, holy life, different, distinct, your kids are one day going to say to you, why are we so weird? Why isn't our mom like the other moms? Why do we go to church so much? Verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? When our children ask why we do what we do, verse 21 tells us to tell them of the greatness of God. Verse 21, tell them. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. When he asked, why do we do what we do? When he asked, why are we so weird? Nobody else out there does what we do. Your answer is there's a great God in heaven, a great deliverer who set us free from bondage. And we've been and we've seen his greatness at work. You say, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know Pharaoh. I hadn't been in Egypt. But you have been delivered. You have been rescued, dear friend. You tell them about your salvation, about your deliverance, the change that God has made, all that he has done. You tell them about God's greatness. You also tell them about his goodness. Verse 23. He brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. Not only do we rehearse for our children the great deeds of our glorious God and give them a sense of God's greatness, 
God's saying here, you tell them that I'm a good God. You tell them that 600 years ago, I made a promise to your forefather Abraham. You tell them that even though it took six centuries to come to pass, my word is true because I am good and I am faithful and it can be trusted. You show him that I am a good God. My friends, each believer here today has a rich legacy of the greatness and the goodness of God. And we should rehearse that legacy in the ears of our children. When you grow old and you're gone, may your children remember and know what the great God of heaven did in your life. And may they pass that legacy to their children and instill in future generations a sense of the wonder that God is at work. Let's tell them how God shaped the events in our lives to bring us salvation and to bring us such that we became one of his servants. With all of that, then, on this Mother's Day, and I've addressed parents, not just mothers, this Parents' Day, here's your take-home truth. Good parents are godly parents. If you're going to be a good parent, the way God defines it, you're going to be a godly parent. So, what if I've already raised my kids? And I hear what God is saying in Deuteronomy 6, and I look back on it, and I didn't do it that way. Or, What if I am blessed to still have children in my home, but I'm not currently doing it that way? I haven't established that in my home. I'm one of those guys you were speaking to who's not leading my home. What if that's the case? What do I do? Now listen, friend, here's the great news. God says, as long as you have breath, there is is always time for you to start over. The Bible has this, I know it sounds like a a negative word to us, but it's this wonderful word, repent. A change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And that repentance always is accompanied by confession to say the same thing that God says about it. Just admit what you just said in your heart. I messed up. I didn't do it right. I've been messing up. I'm not doing it right. Confess that and confess that to the people that were affected by it. First of all, to God and then to your family. If they're grown, you confess that to them now. Here's why. Because you want them to raise their children in a different way. You want them to see that the God of grace forgives if we confess he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you confess to God And you repent. You changed your mind then about who you are, who God is, and what God says. And you're going to go a different direction. And maybe for some of you, the reason that never didn't happen in the past is not happening now is because you have never repented. You've never confessed. You start today. Today. Realize that you're a sinner. You've seen your sin in a number of ways in your own home, in your own children. But God says start over. Realize you're a sinner. Recognize Jesus paid for your sin. Repent and receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. And when we do, those of us who have been blessed by God with godly parents, those of us who have been blessed by God, and friends, no, nobody brags. <laughs> nobody brags before God. It's all the blessing of God. 
If you've been blessed by God because your children are following what you are instructing them to do, then thank God as we bow our heads. Thank God for that and ask God's continued help. And then those who have not been doing that, you confess, you repent, and God gives you the opportunity to start over. Let's bow together. So, Father, there are prayers of all types in this room coming to you, prayers of thankfulness, gratitude for your grace in giving me uh, a godly mother and father. And because of that, leading me to the sound of the gospel. And all of these things were put in place before I ever came to be. You set all of that up for me. So I can take no credit. It's all of you. And so, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for that example, that model, and the effect that it's had on me. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being a parent. The privilege of having a godly wife and mother to lead our children. And whatever happens, whatever results happen, they all redound to your glory. Because it's all because of you. And so we thank you. And so many of us here, we thank you, Lord. And then some of us here, we have regrets. Some of the things that we were never taught. We didn't have that godly heritage. We weren't taught that. And that, those, that baggage has stayed with us. And we brought that into our marriage, into our families. We now have children. We didn't have modeled, they didn't have modeled before them how to be a godly husband, father, wife, and mother. But Lord, we thank you that there's a prayer of confession and repentance now. Asking you to help them to start over. And yet for others, they've had that legacy and rejected it. Could have learned from it, but haven't. Gone a different way. Pursued the almighty dollar. Become a workaholic. Lord, your forgiveness applies to everything we do. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. And so I pray, Lord, that there's thanks going up to you. That there's confession going up to you. That there is repentance being mouthed to you. And Lord, change hearts, in turn change lives, and in turn change families for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.